today on Against the Grain is policing in the U.S. primarily about law enforcement or something else. Ben Brucato points to the origins of the police, which he finds in slave patrols, patrols whose mandate was to uphold white racial domination over blacks. I'm CS. We'll represent an interview with Brucato in which he claims that the institutions of police and of race were created in tandem, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Police exist to do what? Some might say to identify and apprehend criminals. Others would say to uphold order. Still others might insist that police exist to brutalize African Americans. According to Ben Brucato, locating the historical origins of U.S. police goes a long way toward illuminating what drives policing, what the real targets of police activity are and have been. Brucato, a sociologist at Framingham State University, locates the origins of U.S. police in slave patrols, which in turn grew out of efforts to enlist whites, all whites, to control and punish rebellious black slaves. Brucato also contends that the institutions of police and of race were co-created in the U.S. with enduring consequences. Ben Brucato is finishing a book called Race and Police on the Origins of Our Peculiar Institutions, and his article, Policing Race and Racing Police, The Origin of U.S. Police in Slave Patrols, appears in the journal Social Justice. When Ben and I connected recently, I asked him why he decided to investigate the origins of the police. Ever since the killing of George Floyd and the movement that emerged in response to it, a very broad-based movement that we saw active everywhere from small, mostly white towns in southern Indiana to the metropoles in Los Angeles and New York City, we saw the activists doing a couple things, making a couple really important connections. First was that the killing of George Floyd was seen as part of a pattern of police violence that is directed towards the black community. And the other uh, came about when we saw the very particular goals and actions uh, of this movement. They were doing things like targeting the monuments to Confederate soldiers. And there was a sense made that there's this enduring connection between slavery and present-day racism and present-day racist policing. And these activists who are making this connection are on to something that perhaps uh, others who are studying police or thinking about police in a more wholesale way are not making those connections. And those connections are perhaps obvious for me, but I don't see them being obvious to a lot of critical theorists uh, and critics of police. And so I wanted to really mine that connection. And I wanted to look at the, the very origins of these connections. And as we see in the late 17th century, just as a system of slavery is being codified in law, we're seeing ideas about race emerge and articulated through those laws. And those same very laws create the first intentional policing, kind of preventative policing that occurred in mainland America. And so we inherit a tradition that starts there. And of course, we've gone through many profound political economic transitions since that time, of course. It's not a kind of straight line from the beginning of slavery and the slave patrols to the system of racial domination that we have today. Uh, But nonetheless, there are patterns of relationships between race and policing that emerged there in the late 17th century. And your historical argument in this piece, in this article called Policing Race and Racing Police, 
uh, actually begins a, a lot earlier. And I'd like to start with the question of the significance or not of race for those who founded the first British colonies in North America. So you have these British colonists and they are settling North America for the first time. Uh, back then, was race um, a matter of significance, uh, something that they were conscious of, race in terms of, of skin color? So in the 16th and 17th century, the British, or the English rather, who settled the mainland and the West Indies, certainly recognized differences in skin color. They were aware of the existence of differences that they had with Africans. Uh, they were aware of the, the trade in African slaves that the Portuguese and Spanish had well developed at that time. But there wasn't a kind of consensus. There wasn't a, a, a clarity of what the the beliefs of the elites or of even common people in England about Africans and about the significance of skin color. In Tudor England, the, the late 16th century, the idea that the English and the Spanish shared something in common because they shared a common skin color or uh, they were from a common continent would have seemed laughable to them. The idea even of, of European, of being European, uh, didn't really have any significance until the 19th century. In fact, the English were just beginning to think of themselves as English in Tudor England. And in fact, that was a important cultural project for them to imagine who they were as English. And one of the thoughts that they had was that they were lovers of freedom and they conceived of freedom in opposition to slavery. And England was one of the very few countries in Europe that had outlawed slavery outright. In the late 1500s, if a slave were to be brought into the country of England, uh, they would have been immediately freed. They had this idea that anyone who breathes the English air would be free. And when the initial settlements occurred, the charters that were issued from the king said that those who are settling in the New World would have the same rights of the English, and that included being you know, protected against being enslaved. And during the 1600s, the English, their thoughts of slavery included their thoughts about themselves being enslaved. Uh, in fact, in 1650, there were more English held as slaves in Africa than Africans held as slaves by the English. So in that time, they, they had this kind of, this attitude that they were going to be moving beyond slavery. And that was one of the reasons why uh, one of several reasons why England was very late to enter the slave trade uh, compared with Portugal and Spain. And we can look at, at that period and see very wide ranges of ideas about Africans and about the importance of skin color. And even for a century on from then, there's still a lot of variation about how significant skin color is, whether skin color is predictive of anything else. Um, but as we get into the late 1600s and the early 1700s, there is a lot of coherence around racial ideas about, about the English as being members of a race and about Africans as being members of a common race. And that took some time and it had a lot to do with the development of the system of slavery. So when the first Africans in British colonial America were brought to Virginia in 1619, as you write, a conception of race grounded in skin color did not really uh, exist or exist as a, a coherent idea. What kind of labor bondage existed in the first few decades of that settlement in Virginia? So I, we're talking about the early 17th century. And when 
did chattel slavery emerge? Those are really good questions. So with the, the first enslaved Africans who arrived in Virginia, their status was mostly inherited from their initial captors. But we also do know that the blacks, the very few blacks that arrived in the first decades of the Jamestown settlement, they, uh, many of them went on to be free, to own land, some of them to own slaves themselves, including uh, owning other Africans and owning other English men and Scots uh, for that matter. So in those first few decades, there were certainly some blacks that were likely held for their lifetime. Um, again, that was more of a kind of an inherited status than um, having any grounding in law. There was certainly no grounding in law that would have permitted that or directed that. And in fact, that was something that the English very quickly recognized as they started accumulating uh, more black servants and slaves in the middle of the 1600s. But initially, there was really no clear legal status. And this is something that is established in the middle of the 1600s, basically. So, so black skin and slavery become identified in law and practice really beginning in around the 1660s, where this starts to be really coherent and clear. And again, at this time, there's really not even many black slaves in the colony at this point. So, for instance, in 1662, the Virginia Assembly clarified that children born to black women would be held in the same status as their mothers. So if the mother was held as a slave, then the, ch the child would also be a slave. Um, and that's really consequential for the system of slavery that emerged because black women who were enslaved, their status was uh, in part defined as being producers of new slaves. What you're saying that this law passed in 1662, this was about the status of uh, children born to a white man and a black woman, that particular pairing, right? Correct. It was attempting to clarify that specific pairing because there was confusion about it. But another thing is happening uh, in the 1660s, and that's that as the laws are being passed, the word slave and Negro are often used as synonyms. They're used interchangeably. So we're already seeing at that point that it's likely the practices of these settlers were informing this way of thinking about them being one and the same. And again, this is largely because the enslaved Africans that were entering the colony were being brought by the Spanish, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the legal tradition and the custom of the time was that, that their status would be inherited from uh, how they were brought onto the land in the beginning. And eventually they start passing laws that say that very specifically. And it changes as we get closer to the 18th century. They start simply saying that if you don't enter the country with a contract and you have black skin, then you are a slave. It's just kind of cut and dry. Um, that was passed in 1705 in Virginia, for instance. Ben Brucato is his name. He's assistant professor of sociology at Framingham State University. We are talking about an article he contributed to the journal Social Justice. It's called Policing Race and Racing Police, the Origin of U.S. Police in Slave Patrols. I'm C.S. Song. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You, you spend a good amount of time in this article laying out kind of the legal statutory framework developed in Virginia that relates to how slaves were perceived, how enslaved blacks were perceived and treated, and what whites, what white folks could do with impunity to enslaved blacks. So in 1680, Virginia passed a law called the Act for Preventing Negro Insurrection. What did that law do in relation to uh, the rights of whites vis-a-vis -vis the rights of enslaved blacks? 
that 1680 law in Virginia is perhaps the most consequential piece of legislation for that particular colony. It was passed in the wake of Bacon's Rebellion of 1676. That was on their minds. There was this concern that there was increasing rebelliousness, and there was also a demonstration that whites and blacks would rebel together. The rebellion saw the burning of the capital of the colony. Uh, it saw a near insurrection, essentially. And what the 1680 law did is first it identified what the colonists saw as a kind of latent insurrectionist tendency among enslaved blacks. And that was one of the first ways that slave law was identifying characteristics of blacks that was attributing to them these presumed traits that they have this latent tendency to rebel. And this 1680 law established a pass system. We often hear about the slave passes. This is where we first see them in Virginia. It required slaves who were traveling off of their plantation or wherever they were employed to carry a slip of paper that stated that they had permission to be where they were. It stated where they were allowed to go and what time they had to be back. And crucially, this pass system required some kind of enforcement. And what the law did is it assigned that task or that responsibility for enforcement to all whites. And this is a deeply consequential law because it's specifically targeting all people with one skin color. And it's telling all those with another skin color that they're the ones who will be responsible for enforcing it. Uh, it allows them to punish somebody on the spot if they believe that they were in violation of that law. They, so they didn't have to simply uh, you know, detain them. They didn't have a trial. They, the punishment was not administered by a magistrate. It was administered on the spot by a white person, even a lowly white person who had really no social standing or status or economic power whatsoever. Simply by being white, they were enabled to do that. And not just simply enabled, they were instructed to do that. And so here we have, in the absence of a dedicated police force, which is what we think about when we think about police, you're saying that, in a sense, this law conferred policing power on whites, all whites, by virtue of their being white. Precisely. And this is perhaps the most crucial point that I try to make is that before we see dedicated police organizations, we have a legal conception of and a practice in police power, the articulation of police power by the citizens, by white citizens over black bodies and the state very specifically mandating it and, and sanctioning that violence and directing their attention to one specific group of people who are identified solely by the color of their skin. Because at this time, 1680 in Virginia, there were free blacks who were, for all intents and purposes, uh, free to move about. But it was their skin color that would direct any white person to stop them and ensure that they were able to go where they were supposed to be going uh, and where they were permitted to be going. And if they resisted for any reason, they were permitted to, to whip to whip the person. The 1680 law also disarmed all blacks, not just black slaves, but all blacks were, were disarmed at that point. And I think the, the naming of, of the law itself is very instructive. Here is a law that's not, at least in name, about regulating movement or about keeping enslaved blacks at work all day. Um, it's to prevent insurrection. That's the name of the law. It's in the preamble of the law. It's it very clearly states that the concern with the establishment of this past system and the disarming of blacks was to prevent insurrection. 
And so the very first police mandate that's issued by the state in colonial Virginia is a mandate to prevent insurrection. And it's, it's uh, to prevent insurrection made by one race of people. Uh, and it was another race of people who would then be responsible for that preventative policing. Now, again, at this time, they're not even really thinking of them as, as a race. Uh, the laws in Virginia at the time referred to whites either as English or as Christian, and they referred to blacks as Negroes. Uh, but this is where we see not only the development of a police mandate, but the development of racial thinking. Right. And so your argument, if I'm correct, is that the making of race coincided with the making of police, the the very beginnings of police. Is, is that right? That's exactly right. And w one thing I would I would simply want to caution is that coinciding or the coincidence of the making of race and the making of police was not happenstance. Um, in fact, the racial thinking was in many ways absent prior to the the directive issued for all whites to police all blacks. So in that act of establishing that police power, they're creating a, a racial binary. That's really important, I think, for thinking about a institution of race and a, an institution of police that grows out of this period and out of the practice of enslaving Africans. What did this law, again, we're talking about the 1680 Act for preventing Negro insurrection in Virginia. What did this law do in the sense of if all white citizens then become a kind of police and are given surveillance and policing functions specifically against blacks, what did that do in your mind to how whites saw themselves in relation to other whites and in relation to the state? I think it's important to, to recognize that whites were unified in their insecurity. Virginia had experienced decades of instability. Their life expectancy was terrible. One of the reasons uh, why indentured servitude persisted for as long as it did is that indentured servants were cheaper and they died fast anyway. Many of them didn't even survive until the end of their contracts. The colonial administrators and the settlers were often pretty incompetent. They were, they were not very functional at running a government. Uh, they were not very good at providing the basic needs for the settlers. And so insecurity was a matter of fact for everybody in Virginia all the time without enslaving blacks. But when you have a growing population of people who are enslaved for their lifetime and for their children will be enslaved, all their progeny will be enslaved. As, as that population grows, the way that the English think in this time is that all humans want to be free. In fact, their, their very conception of their English identity was, was based in this idea that humans want to be free. And so they believed that anyone who's held in bondage is driven to become free. So insurrection in some ways was to be anticipated. If you have a large population of people who are enslaved for their lifetimes, you're giving them all the incentive to rebel. One of the things that's happening in this period, as they're accumulating more and more enslaved Africans, and as they're passing laws like this, and they're engaging in the practices of policing, is they're identifying in enslaved blacks this insurrectionary tendency. They are the source of insecurity. So the racial binary is, is in some ways defined by that tension. It's not solely defined by whites enslaving blacks, it's also defined by whites fearing black insurrection. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Ben Brucato joins me. He is assistant professor in the sociology department at Framingham State University. He's finishing a book called Race and Police on the Origins of Our Peculiar Institutions, which focuses on the historical 
co-origination and mutual reproduction of unique racial and police institutions in 17th and 18th century British colonial America. And his article about many of these issues, it's called Policing Race and Racing Police, appears in the journal Social Justice. It's a special issue of that journal devoted to a critical theory of police power in the 21st century. The first slave patrol in British colonial America. So yeah, we've been talking about sort of extending to all whites this power to police blacks and enslave blacks. But the first slave patrol in British colonial America, you point out, was formed in 1704. And this was in South Carolina. Now you've been talking about Virginia. What was the situation like in, in South Carolina as far as fears of insurrection and of forming a slave patrol with combating insurrection in mind. So we've been speaking about Virginia in the 1680s, 1690s, roughly. At that time, there were only a, a couple thousand people in South Carolina. South Carolina was, for all intents and purposes, founded by Barbadian immigrants, English immigrants who had settled in Barbados for, at that point, generations. And they brought with them the system of laws, the practices of enslavement, and a way of administering an economy and a social order that was developed over a number of decades in Barbados. And so that tradition is important because the Barbadians were well ahead of the mainland settlers in terms of developing a system of racial slavery, developing law and practices of all whites policing all blacks. And so the Carolinians, although they settled much later than the Virginians, again, by a few generations, they moved very quickly to a system of racial slavery, uh, to create a system of law, to regulate that system of slavery and institutions to control the very rapidly growing black population in South Carolina. So Barbados was the most productive colony that England had in the 17th century, uh, both in terms of the, the profits and also the profit per worker, uh, slave and servant alike. And for that reason, the Barbadians were uh, hugely influential on the other West Indian colonies, and for that matter, on the Spanish and Portuguese colonies. When Barbados was first settled, they learned from the Spanish and Portuguese in how they would establish their sugar plantations, how they would process the sugar, how they would sell it. But they perfected that system mainly through relying on large numbers of enslaved Africans to do the work for them. Through that, they developed new techniques and technologies and sugar production, and soon they were the leaders, they were economic leaders. And so when the Barbadians settled Carolina, they were respected as, as large planters, as kind of an economic engine. Uh, but as the colony grew, the Barbadian immigrants in South Carolina had a, a conflict with the proprietors from England uh, who were given the charter to settle the colony. And for the first several decades, these Barbadian immigrants to Carolina and the English settlers and administrators were in conflict. In some ways, they were in conflict over the priority for developing large plantations, for importing large numbers of enslaved Africans. Uh, and Carolina very quickly had the highest number of slaves and the highest proportion of slaves relative to the English settlers. And that size of the enslaved population moved them very rapidly to, to import the Barbadian laws that focused on controlling and regulating the enslaved population. So it's no wonder that within 
a matter of a few decades, they had the first dedicated police force to do that work. Right. And you write that in the 1730s, so this is about 25 years after the first slave patrol uh, was formed in 1704, the patrols became more police-like. Are, are we talking then about uh, more professional in nature? In a number of ways. So they had, uh, they were compensated. Um, in some places, they were identifiable, uh, whether it was by wearing a badge or somehow other kind of visible presentation to people. When they were riding through the towns, they were known that was the slave patrol that was passing through. The, the slaves and the settlers alike could identify them. They had defined beats. They had areas that they were to patrol. They had very clear mandate in terms of what the expectations of them were. And also their responsibilities were not primarily oriented toward capturing fugitive slaves and enforcing the pass system, although they certainly did those things, their role was preventative. So our policing in what became the United States has always been preventative. And this is somewhat unique to policing in the world. Police scholars will say that that's an advent in the 20th century, but it's been with us from the beginning. So this, this early uh, slave patrol in the 1730s were engaged in preventative policing. They were engaged in routine surveillance, and their concern was to prevent the development of insurrectionary plots. So they would search slave quarters for weapons. In the early 1700s, one of the primary ways that the patrollers were compensated was that they got to keep those weapons, and they would break up any gatherings uh, in public or private spaces, so whether in slave quarters or in the area where the slave dwellings were at or in the towns or in gathering places. Uh, there were kind of essentially drinking establishments for working class whites, uh, working class blacks and enslaved blacks uh, would gather. And so they would kind of break up uh, gatherings in those places. And the entire purpose was to prevent the development of plots for insurrection. And then secondarily, uh, their concern was with eliminating the pilfering of goods. One of the things that we see in all of the places where there's large groups of, of the enslaved in the colonies is they had developed markets where they would sell their goods for, for profit. They would sell the things that they grew in their gardens. So very often slaves had small gardens next to their dwelling and any of their surplus they would take to market. Um, they also, many of them, were selling the commodities for their enslavers. So they would take their enslavers' products to market. So the slave patrols were trying to ensure that any black person who was in a market selling goods, they were, they were first of all, permitted to be there. If they were selling their, their master's wares, that their master knew they were there and that the money got back to him. Um, and a lot of the early laws and the, the directives to the slave patrols were to regulate these markets. So this, the past system was not only about regulating the movement of slaves, it was also about regulating the, the economy to ensure that the enslaved were not profiting from stolen goods uh, and they were not in markets where they were not supposed to be. The Carolinians were really concerned with regulating that market in, to the point of limiting any kind of interracial trade. Uh, there was a concern that the interchange between lowly whites and enslaved blacks in the marketplace would be a place where they could find common interests and hatch plots to rise up in rebellion. So the logic, the logic of these mandates for the slave patrols and then for the dedicated police forces was, you know, as you have been saying, and as you indicate in this article, and as you will indicate in your book, is overwhelmingly racial, right? It's not just, uh, it's not just preventing insurrection, it's preventing the insurrection conducted by enslaved blacks and by 
um, maroons who were black um, uh, overwhelmingly. And uh, the pilfering of commodities, they were concerned about um, blacks uh, doing this. So, so what, what does this say about kind of conventional notions of the police existing and the assumption that police were formed, were, were originally formed to do law enforcement, to enforce compliance with the law and, and keep order in a sort of um, non-racial way, like in a sort of universal way? Well, one of the important things that we see with the slave patrols is that they were not making arrests and bringing people in front of magistrates to be charged with infringements of the law. They were to proactively stop to administer punishments whenever they saw fit. They were given extraordinary discretion in when they they were able to and would use violence and the degree of violence that they were able to use. And that patterns policing in this country up until present day. One of the things that I think average people know for the most part is if they think about all the myths and the things that we are told about policing is that they're really not law enforcers first and foremost. And police scholars know this very well, that very little of what police do, including in making arrests, is done with recourse to the law. The law enforcement activities are really performed by prosecutors. Police are engaged in this production of order. Uh, this kind of proactive presence in the community, engaging in surveillance uh, in order to manifest a particular kind of social order and to defend it against threat. And that's what they did from the beginning, and that's what they continue to do to this day. His name is Ben Brucato, B-R-U-C-A-T-O. He's taught at Rhode Island College, the University of Rhode Island, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He serves on the editorial board of the journal Criminological Encounters and on the advisory board of the journal Anarchist Developments and Cultural Studies. We are talking about an article he contributed to the journal Social Justice. His article is entitled Policing Race and Racing Police, the Origin of U.S. Police in slave patrols. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You write that a properly critical theory of U.S. police needs to center an analysis of racial capitalism. And, you know, in some ways, of course, we've been talking about capitalism, although we haven't really been explicit in using that term. But I assume here you mean that unless and until we sort of acknowledge the centrality of slavery as a racial capitalist institution, we cannot grasp the, the making of race and therefore the origins of the police in the U.S. get obscured? I think that that's a, a big part of it, is that capitalism on this continent emerged through slavery. The first true proletarian class were the enslaved blacks. They understood themselves as workers, as a class of workers. They saw themselves as a coherent group of people who were defined by their position relative to production. And the capital that was accumulated through their enslavement and through their production of value is what gave birth to the first capitalist class on the continent. In fact, it birthed an entire global economic system where slave production in the U.S. South was the, the center, the center of the entire global economy. The, the cotton that ended up in the textile mills in London was grown in the U.S. South. And it's crucial to recognize that that system of capitalism required police from the very beginning. It started out with the popular activity of policing that was engaged in by all white citizens and eventually was taken up by dedicated organizations uh, throughout the, the South and really also in the North as well, except 
the in the north, those organizations were the militia. Um, in fact, in the south, before the slave patrols were founded, the militia was tasked with the policing of slaves as well. It stayed that way in, in the north as well. But from the very beginning, the development of capitalism in what became the United States relied on the enslavement of blacks, and it relied on a very specific method of creating and defending the security of that economy through proactive preventative policing that targeted all blacks as as latent insurrectionaries and threats to that system. And speaking of economic factors, could we say that labor shortages in the British colonies in North America and in the early US in as much as these shortages led to the increased importation of enslaved Africans, that these labor shortages were an important factor in how the, the missions and objectives of the first patrols and police in the U.S. were defined? Absolutely. A critical component to recognize here is that this system of slavery was created through a crisis of underproduction that it was caused by labor shortages. In fact, when Virginia started increasing their importation of African slaves, they did it a bit reluctantly. In fact, they were trying to offset the population of enslaved Africans by importing more English and other European servants. It was a concerted effort that the Virginians made. And in fact, at one point, the Carolinians did the same. Uh, but they simply couldn't import enough of them. There was there were some pretty profound changes in the English economy at the time that, that led to that. Uh, prior, in the early, mid-1600s, there weren't enough jobs for the growing urban populations. And it was easy for them to find servants who would sign up for four or five year contracts to work without pay to come to the US and then at the end of their contracts be granted land. Uh, they had no economic opportunities in England. And that changed throughout the course of the 17th century. By the end of the 17th century, there were a lot more jobs, and also the demographics were changing. The birth rate declined over the course of the 17th century. And so there was a real crisis in the economy. There was a kind of insatiable demand for the products of the colonies, and there wasn't the ability to produce it. And so they, they relied increasingly on new imports of African slaves, uh, either directly from Africa or from the West Indies. And that was really what, what led to it. The, the, you know, historians will debate about the level of importance. There were many causal factors, really, that led to uh, a system of racial chattel slavery. But the labor shortage is certainly a, a primary cause of that transition. The sociologist Ben Brucato joins me on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. So we've talked about the first slave patrol in British colonial America, formed in 1704 in South Carolina. Uh, you write that, with certain exceptions, South Carolina's slave patrol served as a model for other states. Uh, you write that in 1727... Virginia passed a law establishing an organization dedicated to policing slaves. What happened to, moving forward quite a bit, what happened to the slave patrols after slavery was abolished in the U.S.? That's an interesting story because there is no one answer to that. You know, formally they were, they were abolished. But if you look in many of the, the larger towns and cities in the South, the same people were doing the the policing during and after the Civil War. The Freedmen's Bureau, the, you know, the Northerners were going into the South and they were trying to dismantle the the political infrastructure of the system of slavery in the South, and that certainly led to the dissolution of the the slave patrols. But 
that was their system of policing by and large. And they continued in some respects, but the entire legal and political infrastructure of the South was upended at the end of the Civil War. And so there was a lot of kind of disarray. There was also some really incredibly interesting innovations in politics that was happening in the South where former slaves were sitting in elected offices for some time. This is the whole story of Reconstruction, which I can hardly recap here in, within a few moments. But one thing that's happening in that disarray is there's a reconceptualization of how the racial social order would be maintained. And that entailed discussions of policing that racial order. And we see an increasing reliance on vigilantes and private police organizations. We see the Ku Klux Klan eventually emerge and really their first activity is, is in policing. And that's an era where we kind of go back to this early 1600s tradition of relying on the, on the populace, the white populace as a whole to maintain order. And the legal systems that, that came up at the end of, and we could say at the failures of reconstruction were the passing of what we now call black codes. And if you look at the, the text of the black codes of the, the 1870s and the 1880s, they looked very much like the slave codes that were in place beforehand. The, the slave passes were replaced by work papers where blacks that did not have proof that they had a job uh, were classified as vagrants and arrested. Some of them ended up serving as convict slaves themselves, although the the role of convict slavery and replacing slavery uh, is perhaps overstated to some degree. The, the state that used convict slavery the most never had more than 2,000 convicts leased in a given year. You can hardly replace 4 million slaves with a few thousand convicts being leased. But really what that process did was it forced blacks into dangerous, low-paid and sometimes barely paid work. It forced them into tenant lease systems and uh, sharecropping systems that they were exploited through. Uh, so really the new black codes that emerge and the system of policing around those black codes that emerge look a heck of a lot like the the slave pass system. And rather than enslaving blacks, you have a kind of a sub-proletariat or a, a kind of an underclass of people who are barely paid, if paid at all, uh, who are extraordinarily exploited. And they're forced into those positions because if they did not have evidence of working in some capacity, they would be jailed, probably after being brutally beaten. I wonder if we could end Ben, with the last paragraph of your piece, of your article in Social Justice, can you read that paragraph and, and comment briefly on it? The counter-insurrectionary mandate, the extension of the police power to all white citizens, and the nearly exclusive attention of police on the black population are all defining features of police during the colonial and antebellum periods in the United States. In these periods, police capitalism, race, and citizenship were locked in a co-constructive relationship, a relationship that has remained co-adaptive and has persisted up to our current time in this country. So what I'm attempting to say here is that there are patterns that are formed in these periods that, that come to shape the institutions of race and police up until our day. We see this happen in different ways. There's all these kind of different crises of security and crises of production that shape how the institutions of race and police are required to adapt in order to maintain a system of racial domination. And at any period of tumult and, and disorder, we see a concern with reshaping and refashioning race such that 
it still becomes an enduring method of organizing our society and police are a core component of how those divisions will be maintained. We know that in the late 1900s that the racial composition of cities is a driving factor on when they develop their so-called modern police organizations. In the 20th century, one of the primary drivers of a highly concentrated police force in any given locality is not just the large proportion of blacks that live there, but also that those areas have a history of racially charged rebellions. So those cities that have seen uh, things like race riots in the 1960s and other kind of uprisings and protests in the 90s and that we saw again in the, uh, the last decade, that in those places where they have a high concentration of blacks, that's where you will see the largest proportion of police. Ben Brucato, assistant sociology professor at Framingham State University, finishing a book called Race and Police on the Origins of Our Peculiar Institutions. And you can find his article, Policing Race and Racing Police, the Origin of U.S. Police in Slave Patrols, in the journal Social Justice, specifically volume 47, numbers 3 and 4. Uh, ben, thanks so much for your work, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that program first aired last August 11th. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.